a listener production. This is Crafita Happy and I am your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher, and of course, author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this show, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field and who have something of value to share that will help you feel less crappy and more happy. Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus are the minimalists. Best friends since primary school, they both discovered in their late 20s that their successful careers, high incomes and lavish lifestyles were not making them any happier. In fact, quite the opposite. First Josh and later Ryan embarked on an endeavour to declutter their lives and have now spent the last decade or more sharing the message of how to live a more meaningful life with less. Through their website, uh, theminimalists.com, their books, their podcast, and two Netflix documentaries, they've shared their message with an audience of over 20 million people. To be clear, this is much more than a conversation about decluttering. This is about re-examining our lives, our relationships, and getting honest about what we value so that we can live a life that is more authentic and that allows space for what is truly important. Here's my conversation with The Minimalists. Ryan and Joshua, thank you so much for being on the Crappy to Happy podcast. Thanks for having us. We're, we're excited to be here. Thank you so much. You guys are the minimalists. You've been the minimalists for over a decade now. You've got two Netflix documentaries, a series of books, a podcast. You've reached over 20 million people with your message. Congratulations on that. I would like to start by going back to the beginning and asking how you first got onto this idea of minimalism and what really struck you about this as being a good idea in the first place. I guess we have to start at the beginning, right? Um, we were both born in 1981, so uh, we're 40 years old this year, and uh, we grew up really poor and in Dayton, Ohio, uh, in, in the States. And you know, sort of this almost the, the cliche version of... of poverty and, and crappy, right? It's, uh, it's poverty, it's, it's government assistance, it's not having much money, but there's also alcohol abuse, drug abuse in the home, physical violence in our homes as well. And Ryan and I were pretty discontented growing up. And we thought, well, the reason we were so discontented is our parents didn't have any money, right? And so, of course, when I turned 18, I went out and I got a, a corporate job. By the way, Ryan and I have known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. And uh, so when I turned 18, I went out and got a a corporate sales job and and spent the next dozen years climbing the corporate ladder. And by my late twenties, by age 30, I said, sort of achieved everything I ever wanted. The six figure salary, the luxury cars, the, the, the big suburban house with more toilets than people. I really had all the stuff to fill every corner of my consumer driven life. I was living the American dream which has permeated your borders as well, right? Yes, and so yeah, it, it's permeated much. the borders, yeah, of pretty much every country in the world. There's 193 countries in the world and probably 190 of them are trying to live the American dream. And the problem was it was actually a nightmare. I was working 70, 80, 80 hours a week. I was stressed out. I was discontented and I was buying a lot of things to pacify myself. And Ryan was doing the same thing. In fact, we worked at the same corporation together. He saw that I was making good money in my 20s. And I thought, well, this is sure to make me happy. And so by the time I was 19, I was making $50,000 a year. But I was like, well, wait a minute. 
That's not making me happy. Maybe I need to adjust for inflation. Maybe it's $75,000 or $100,000, you know, six figures. That must be happiness, right? Well, the problem was as I made more money, I spent even more money and racked up a ton of debt along the way. So I made really good money, but spent even better money. And that was a recipe for misery. And two events happened to me when I was in my late 20s. My, my mother died, my marriage ended both in the same month. And these two events forced me to look around and, and start to question what had become my life's focus. And, and I realized I was really focused on all of the, the wrong things, all, all of the, the so-called success and achievement. In our culture, what is that? It's, it's through the accumulation of trinkets, stuff, cars, clothes, walk-in closets full of shoes and all of these things that are supposed to make me happy, but they weren't doing their job. They weren't filling the void that I had created. And so when those two events sort of happened uh, back to back, it was like a, a one-two punch, same month, right? I, I looked around and I realized like, oh, I need to simplify my life. That's where I stumbled across this thing called minimalism uh, online. I found a whole community of people who were living more deliberately. And there were different people. Some people had kids. Leo Babalta had six kids and he was a minimalist, right? And then you had a guy named Colin Wright, who was a peripatetic traveling minimalist and everything he owned fit in his backpack. And you had Courtney Carver and her daughter and, and uh, the sort of minimalist family. And I realized like, oh, well, wait a minute. There are all these different flavors of living with less. Maybe this is applicable to me as well, because I didn't aspire to be like any of those people, but I did aspire to find some of the maybe uncover some of the peace, tranquility, equanimity, freedom that those people were experiencing. And then, so I spent about eight months simplifying my life, got rid of about 90% of my material possessions. I don't know if you know this, but the average American household has about 300,000 items in it. Now, that'd be all well and good if it was making us happier and, and more content and joyous, but it's often doing the opposite. It's making us compare ourselves to other people, which is of course the thief of joy. And so I realized that this competition, this comparison, this, this more, more, more was not working out. And so it wasn't about the pursuit of less. It was more about Letting go, subtract. Letting go isn't something you do. I learned that early on. Letting go is something you stop doing, right? You, you stop clinging to right. everything, every material thing. But it turns out that these material things in my life, they were just a physical manifestation of what was going on inside me. And so all this external clutter, the physical clutter, meant that I also had all this internal clutter, the mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, relational clutter, career clutter. The letting go of the stuff made room to start questioning everything in my life. But then people around me started noticing some profound changes in me. People at work started coming up to me and saying things like, hey, what's going on with you? You seem less stressed. Hey, you seem so much calmer. And Ryan came to me one day and he said, why the hell are you so happy? And so I told him about this thing called minimalism. You know, I didn't jump up and say, look at me, I'm a minimalist and you should be a minimalist too. It wasn't about proselytizing. In fact, Ryan and I, even now, even with, we have books and all this other stuff, we're not trying to convert anyone to minimalism. I don't want to convince you to become a minimalist, but I understand that if you are discontented by the status quo, then perhaps simplifying will make room for those more important questions. Mm. I don't think it's possible to really convert someone into minimalism, but yeah. you know, what, 
what Josh and I try to do is is just share a recipe that has worked for us to help us get out of that that crappy situation. Um, uh, my situation was like Josh's, working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week, uh, forsaking some of the most important aspects of my life, my health, my relationships, uh, my creativity. Uh, I, I, I certainly wasn't contributing. I uh, wasn't really growing in any, any way. I was, I was chasing a lot of ephemeral pleasures, uh, whether it was a nicer car or a nicer house or a bigger paycheck to buy those things. Uh, drugs and alcohol soon started to creep into my life. I was kind of in this tornado. And when I saw this, this change in Joshua, um, I just knew that I, I wanted to have something in my life that, that he had in his life, which was that tranquility. It was peace. It was, it was a bit of a calm, uh, a calm emotion that he was emitting. And so when he told me about minimalism, what I heard was common sense. And, you know, unfortunately these days, common sense, it's, it's not too common. Amen. And I, I certainly uh, wasn't, <laughs> I was not, uh, I did not have common sense myself. So I just saw some practical things that I thought I could apply to my life. So I got really excited. I'm like, oh, wow, minimalism. Like, this sounds great, man. All right, cool. I'm in. I'm a minimalist. <laughs> All right. Like, now what do I do? I, I didn't know where to start. So Josh kind of explained to me his journey. Um, but for me, I, need, I needed faster results. I, I couldn't spend seven or eight months decluttering my life. I, I needed faster results, something to really change my state to change um, my, my perspective. So Josh and I, we came up with this crazy idea called a packing party where we decided to pack all my belongings as if I were moving. And then I would unpack only the items I needed over the next three weeks. So Josh came over and he literally helped me box up everything, my clothes, my kitchenware, my TVs, my towels, my frame photographs and paintings, my toiletries, even my furniture. Like we literally pretended like I was moving. I just want to interrupt that. That's a huge thing to yeah, do. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, I'm, I'm like one of those people who I will always like dive in head first if I feel like that's what I have to do again to like change my state. There's like yeah. a Tony Robbins thing where he always talks about the best way to interrupt these, these negative patterns that we have or these, these impulses is to really change your state. So I saw an opportunity with this packing party to, to do just that. And it totally did. I mean, after those three weeks, I had 80% of my stuff still sitting in those boxes, just sitting there unaccessed. And that's really where uh, the minimalists.com started. It was, it was with that 21 day packing party journey. It's really interesting to hear you both take such a different approach. I was, when uh, Joshua, when you said it took you eight months, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, this is not something that <laughs> we have to do in a weekend, yes. you know, clear everything out of our house. So right. I guess different different approaches will suit different people when it comes to re-examining, you know, the amount of clutter in our lives and how we might go about yeah. shedding some of that. That's what I really like about what Josh and I do is, you know, him and I, yes, we're both minimalists. Uh, we live this lifestyle, but we have completely different approaches. We have completely different recipes and our hope with, with our message, with our book that's coming out, love people use things. Our hope is that people can see this recipe and they can start to tweeze out ingredients for themselves. So whether it's an eight month journey, whether it's a 21 day packing party journey, which people in our book uh, actually did, we got some people to, to do that packing party uh, journey and, and tell us about it. And we wrote about it and, and love people use things. But then there, there's kind of the middle of the road approach. Uh, it's called the, the minimalism game. 
And basically, Josh and I, we both realize how boring uh, decluttering can be. So <laughs> we decided to make it fun uh, with a little friendly competition. So, you know, the, the middle of the road approach is this. You find a friend or a family member, someone else who wants to declutter, and then you both agree to start on the first day of the month and you both get rid of one item. And then on the second day of the month, you get rid of two items. Then on the third day of the month, three items. And then on the, all right, so you probably get the point. So on and so forth. That yeah, starts yeah. out really, really easy. Yeah. Until you get to like, you know, day number 19 and you're like, oh man, tomorrow I got to get rid of 20 things. And then the next day, 21 things. So it, it starts to build uh, some momentum. Now the person who goes the longest wins. You can bet something. I don't know. But someone makes a dinner for the winner, or I don't know. The loser has to wear a silly hat. I, you can make it anything you want. But if both people make it to the end of the month, then both people win because they would have gotten rid of about five hundred items. It's a great yeah, start. Wow. I'm curious to know when you both, you know, hit upon this minimalist idea and you started to declutter what was your initial emotional response? Was it freeing? Was there some angst and attachment? Like what was mm. the, the, in the early days, how did it feel? Mm. Free, freeing is a complicated word, right? Mm. Because, and we even write about that in, in the book quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I think that jettisoning your excess stuff can be freeing and, and, but it can also be exciting. And let's not confuse the two, right? Excitement is not freedom. Um, and, but I also think letting go of the stuff on its own is not inherently meaningful, right? And, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes we can, we can get a little confused there yeah. and think, well, you know, buying the stuff didn't make me happy. And therefore, but you know what? Getting rid of the stuff must make me happy. And then, well, no, that's like trying to fill the void by emptying the void. The, the, the problem is the void altogether. You've been lied to by advertisers, by marketers, by society, by culture, et cetera, being told that you're inadequate, that you're not enough, that you're imperfect, right? And so, yes, clearing the clutter it can be freeing, but not freeing in the sense that we traditionally think. Sometimes we think of freedom. What do we think? Doing whatever we want, whenever we want. That's not freedom. That's tyranny. If I told my daughter, eight-year-old daughter to, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. She'd just watch videos all day or play in traffic and eat brownies, right? And so yes. that, that's not freedom. Real, real freedom involves a, a type of, of self-restraint. And, and so when we're talking about minimalism, we're not talking about doing something that's going to make you happy. Doing less is not about the doing, it's about the less. Maybe that's the way that I would put it. <laughs> because... I think we can get really caught up in, in simply the exercise without the under understanding. We're, there's a great story in the book of this couple, uh, Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall, uh, in the the stuff chapter. It, you know, it's a relationship book, and so there's seven different relationships. One of them is our it starts with our relationship with stuff. You know, we're the minimalists, so it makes sense to start there. And and Jason and Jen, they they live in the Midwest and they sort of were living the American dream like me and Ryan. In fact, there are a lot of parallels between their story and ours. And in fact, we've met dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who have a, a similar story whenever we go out on tour. And what, what was fascinating about them is they stumbled across this whole minimalism thing and they began letting go of the stuff, but really it was the letting go of the attachment that set them free because it is possible to just rent a dumpster and throw all your stuff in it 
and be utterly miserable because you didn't let go of the attachment. You didn't understand the attachment to the stuff because attachment, you know, this is what the Buddhists got right. I mean, it's, it's a, a fundamental tenet when, when they talked yes. about how attachment is suffering, right? Well, yes, and we're getting dragged by, that, by our stuff because we're clinging to everything. As I said earlier, letting go is not something you do. It's something you stop doing. You stop clinging to the material possessions. You stop clinging to toxic relationships. You, you stop acting like busy is a good thing. Busy is what's making us mm -hmm. miserable. It's the worst four-letter mm -hmm. word in the English language. You stop posturing as if all the achievements make you, you. If you let go of the thing, but not the attachment, then you will still get dragged. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that feeling cast that, that I had when I, when I first experienced my, my uh, decluttering or, or that packing party, when I was sitting there in front of all my stuff and boxes, I felt this overwhelming feeling of guilt and it was guilt from a, a lot of different ways. It was a waste of money. Um, you know, I told myself that, man, if I worked really hard, and made enough money, maybe I could retire at age 50. Maybe I could retire in, in America, you know, 65 years old, or maybe 67 at this point. But I thought maybe I could retire, you know, about 15 years early. But then when I looked at how I was spending my money, I was like, oh, like I'm, that's what I'm telling myself, but that's not what I'm doing at all. Hmm. When I looked at uh, my relationships with people, you know, I, I thought about the people that I was forsaking to work as much as I was working, to pay for all this stuff that wasn't making me happy. And it made me think of my mom. I mean, my mom lived about 30 minutes away and I probably saw her four or five times a year, birthdays, holidays, things like that. And uh, it was interesting because I kind of had this, this reckoning with what I thought my priorities were versus what they actually were. Because if you would have asked me before that packing party, if you would have been like, hey, Ryan, what are your priorities? I would have been like, oh, well, it's my health because, you know, you, you can't live a good life unless you have health. It's my relationships. You got to have good people in your life. And, you know, I, I would have rambled off some of these really nice sounding values, these nice sounding priorities. But when I looked at what I was actually doing with my time, um, I wasn't focusing on those things at all. And I kind of had this, this light bulb moment of, oh, like my priorities are not what I say they are. It's what I actually do. So there, there was a lot of guilt that I had to get over um, when I, when I kind of had this reckoning and uh, it's, it, it was, it was worth it though, for sure. It really is a question of values, isn't it? I mean, that's what you really outline in this newest book, Love People Use Things, about examining all of the relationships, as you said, in your life. It mm -hmm. starts with stuff, but it's really about being intentional in every area of your life. Yeah, you're right. We wanted to write a relationship book, like a traditional relationship book. And we kind of get there at the end of the book. You know, there's a, it's my favorite chapter is our relationship with people. But what Ryan and I realized is that, oh, what, what is the thing that was keeping us from thriving in our different relationships, be it intimate relationships, friendships, business relationships, whatever it was, what, what was, what was adding to the discontent, to the misery? What was crappy about these things, right? And it was, oh, it was all of these other relationships that were sort of getting in the way of our relationships, our relationship with stuff. But then, of course, our relationship with the truth. You know, we're constantly lying to ourselves. We're lying to others. We're creating these narratives that don't exist. Uh, our relationship with ourself, 
right? You, the self-care is really popular in the sort of zeitgeist today. But self-care is, you know, we, we can set that aside and realize like, what is my relationship with the person I spend every hour with, whether I'm conscious or unconscious, I am still there. I'm with me all the time. And man, that is often a very tense relationship. One That's that, the most challenging one, I think, for a lot of people. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it brings up a lot of shame and guilt, right? And so we, we tried to deal with that in the book. But then the, the fourth relationship is values. What is our relationship with our values? And as Ryan mentioned earlier, that there are these sort of, well, there are four different types of values. What Ryan was talking about a moment ago is this, this fourth type of value. I'll get there in a second. But we all have the same sort of foundational values. But then we, we have... You know, sort of these, so like every house is built on a foundation. So health, relationships, growth, contribution, creativity. These are, are similar values that most human beings have. They may manifest differently for all of us. They take different shapes, but for the most part, we all have the same foundational values. But then we have these these structural values, you know, the, 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 the sort of planks in, in your house, the, the, uh, the, the structure that, that determines the shape of your house. And that's, th- those tend to be individual. And then we have surface values, things that add value to our life. Sometimes these are even considered just preferences or interests. And then unfortunately, we spend most of our time focusing on the fourth area of values, the imaginary values. <laughs> those lip service values that Ryan was talking about. We pretend so many things are worthwhile in our lives. But if you show, you, you might say your values are all the nice things that Ryan said about health and, and the people, et cetera. But if you show me your calendar and your bank statement, how are you spending your time and your resources? I can tell you what you really value. And that's true with anyone. However, we're spending those most precious resources of ours, our time, our attention, our finances. Well, that is, that's, those are our real priorities in our life. And that's what we actually value. Unfortunately, we're spending a whole lot of time on things that we don't want to spend time on. Uh, the fifth, the, the fifth relationship is our relationship with money. Of course, that's rather contentious. It breaks up relig- relationships and, and, and businesses and, and marriages, et cetera. Um, and it makes us miserable. We go into debt to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't even know. And, um, and then the last two areas, we have the, our relationship with creativity. We can't talk about really, we're all creators. You know, we, we've been told by the media that we are consumers and by business, big, big businesses and corporations that we are consumers, but fundamentally we are creators. We have been creators for millennia. And uh, yes, it's true that we do consume some stuff. There's no question about that. And certain things add value to our life. Ryan and I are not ascetics. We're not saying get rid of your stuff and live with nothing, become a monk. What we're trying to understand is, wow, what adds value to our lives? And then let's get rid of the stuff that doesn't. I remember once at one of our live events, someone came up and said, it seems like you guys didn't get rid of anything important. And Ryan just looked at him and he goes, yeah, that's right. That's the whole point of the whole minimalism thing. We shed the access so we can make room for what's truly important. I hope that you're enjoying this conversation and realizing the benefits of positivity in your own life. If you are enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe so that you get notified when new apps drop and head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review. You talk, the bit that really 
struck me in the book. I haven't finished reading it, but you talk about how um, you, Joshua, got rid of your TV, first of all. You just moved and you didn't have a TV. And then uh, you needed to get the internet connected and you delayed getting the internet connected. And then ultimately you put the phone away. And just those three, like, well, they're three huge things, but the television, the internet and the phone, and suddenly there was all of this space which I think many people would initially find deeply uncomfortable because they're so used to being busy and distracted. But what that opened up in terms of the space to create and connect and all of those really important things. But I guess for the average person, how do we, it's, it's about looking at, well, how do we, you don't have to get rid of your internet and your phone and your TV, but how do you make more of that space? How do you use those things less and more meaningfully? I like to think that this book is not a how-to book. We, we have certainly have some sort of rules in there that we, we share loosely and, and some best practices, but it's really a why-to book. Mm. I mean, look, our, our addictions are, show, are showing. You know, it, if you look around next time you're in a checkout line, what are you going to see? Yeah, heads tilted downward, faces lost in glowing screens. Our technology is turning us into zombies. Mm-hmm. It's weird because a generation ago, nearly everyone was what? What were they doing? They would just light up a cigarette next to you, even at the office or on an airplane. And it seemed completely normal. But now if someone did that next to you, you, you would be like, what the heck are you doing? This is, this is insane. And, and it's unthinkable, right? But it's just been replaced by the captivating glow of all of these screens that are around us. Scrolling is the new smoking. Yeah. And so you know, there's this great um, comedian, Ronnie Chang. He has this joke. He, he says, uh, he's an immigrant. And he said, it feels like every night in America is a competition to see how many screens we can get between our wall and, the, and our faces. It's the, the TV and then it's like my laptop and then the tablet and then the phone and then the Apple watch or whatever. And it's all of these things. Well, why are we doing that? Because we were afraid of something. We're afraid of, of boredom, which is weird because what if we were to reframe that? It's not boredom. What if it's peace? Mm. Oh my God. What are we, are we afraid of peace? Yeah. Well, why are we afraid of peace? Well, because we feel inadequate. We feel like we aren't enough. And yeah, in the book, we dealt with a lot of things, a lot of sort of shame with being countercultural, but also the shame before that, right? I mean, Ryan and I did a lot of things that we aren't proud of. The book deals with you know, drug addiction, alcohol abuse. I had a really good friend of mine call me today, this morning. And, and uh, you know, for the book, I, I actually sat down with Ryan. It's the first time I've ever interviewed him for anything. We sort of just did this outline um, of... You know, some of the things that he went through throughout his 20s. And, and I had a friend call me today, a friend who knows both of us really well. And he goes, wow, I didn't know, I didn't know all of this about Ryan. Like I knew some of the, the edges, but like, this is the most personal that you guys have ever gotten. And, and the reason being is we all deal with this stuff. We all deal with some sort of addiction, whether it's technology addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, food addiction. That was my addiction. Yeah, and, and so uh, stuff, addiction, consumerism, addiction, all of these addictions, we all deal with it, but we don't ever talk about it, right? We're ashamed of it. We deal with things like infidelity, which both of us write about in, in the book. These things come up in our lives because we feel as though we need to escape. Mm-hmm. And so we had, to, we had to unpack some of these, these escapes in our own lives so that we could 
we could help people understand that this is not, in a way it sounds cliche, but some cliches are actually profound. You're not alone. Mm. You know, it's interesting. We have this weird standard we hold people to, like especially those in influencer positions or role models or, you know, government positions. We have this like standard that they have to be, you know, on this pedestal, they have to be more perfect than your average person. And what this creates is actually, it creates a lot of uh, disingenuousness. I mean, it, it creates a lot of, a lot of lies, a lot of cover-ups, a lot of things like that. When in reality, you know, when I look at the people I learned from the most is the people who have been where I have been and they overcome it and they find a way to move forward in a way that is redemptive, that, that leads them to, towards a more meaningful life. They, they don't give up. And, and they move past it, they get over it. And so, you know, Josh and I really wanted to do that with this book. Like we wanted to show like, hey, we are not on this pedestal. We're not better than thou. We're not, you know, there's nothing exceptional about us. Uh, I mean, maybe the only exceptional thing is, is we, we decided to do something about our crappy lives and, and, and change the way we were living. Um, but again, I mean, I, I think that's where people will get the most out of, out of Josh and I's story out of this book is realizing that, you know, Josh and I are just like everyone else. We just decided to do a few different things and live a little bit differently. 100% agree. I think we all uh, learn more and we experience more shifts within ourselves when we hear other people's lived experience and we can relate to other people's struggles. I mean, most of what you're talking about here, I can personally relate to. And you talk about, there's lots of things that I hear in your story and I know the listeners of the show as well will be able to see in their own stories and their own lives. I think, you know, I was going to say to you guys, I'm not a minimalist. In fact, I'm probably a bit compulsive with clothes and books are my two Achilles heels. They're the things that I <laughs> um, spend way too much money on. And I would make the distinction. I don't know if you would make the distinction. And I, that's, this is just a side note, but I think there is a difference between being attached to the actual stuff because I love to have a good clear out sometimes. There's still a bit of attachment or will I ever use that thing again? An attachment, like you said, to the dopamine hit of the, the buying the stuff. You know, it's that compulsive shopping kind of thing. Like I get a hit every time I shop versus actually I just really am attached to all of these things in my house. Mm. It's a, it's, sure. There's a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. One, one's a chase, one's an attachment. Mm. I, I think they both will lead to misery. They'll both lead yeah. to uh, feeling pretty quite crappy, uh, but you're right. You you're able. You can keep things and not have an attachment to them. You know, yeah. I, I'm rather utilitarian, so uh, I'm a, maybe a more extreme minimalist than than some other minimalists. But that's just because I've identified what adds value to my life, and I don't have a problem letting go of anything. One, one of the things we write about in the book, we have these 16 rules for living with less. And one of the rules is called the willing to walk rule. There's this old movie from the nineties uh, called Heat. And there's a, a, a character who I don't aspire to be like, he, he's actually the bad guy in the movie, but uh, it, it's Robert De Niro's character, uh, Neil McCullough, I think his name was. And anyway, he, he has this great line. He said, never bring anything into your life that you're not prepared to walk away from in 30 seconds flat. Now, while I don't agree with that literally, I can understand the sentiment behind that because what's the alternative? And I, I even apply that to relationships, even to my marriage, not 30 seconds flat, 
That's a bit hyperbolic, right? But I, I do look and I say, what's the alternative to stay in something out of obligation, to hold on to an object because you feel obligated? Well, that's a type of prison, right? And so if I'm in a relationship, whether it's a, a marriage or a business relationship or a friendship, whatever it might be, I want to be there because I want to be there. Mm. I will sometimes say that the thing you want is never the thing you want. And so what does that, what does that mean, right? Yeah. We think that we desire possessions and, 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 and people and prominence, but really, what we really desire is the feeling that arises from those things. And I think if we interrogate our wants, we can really locate what we truly desire. It's fascinating. I think a lot of us say we want peace in our lives, but we behave in ways that attract all the chaos. And I, I'm saying this not from a place of judgment. I'm saying it from a place of identification because I see that in me and I see that especially in, in the way that uh, the, the way that I behaved uh, yesteryear. Yeah, Cass, I'll tell you too. I mean, just, you know, to, to add an accent to the fact that we're not on these pedestals. Um, you know, as one of the minimalists, I still get that dopamine hit when I buy something. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I probably, like I buy a new phone when my phone breaks. You know, I don't, I don't go after the, the next upgrade just so I can have the next upgrade, but I want it. Every time I see that advertisement for the release of it, I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. It's got a HDR camera and wow, it shoots in 4k and you know, whatever it is. Like I, I, my impulse is to go get that thing and eventually my phone will break or, or it gets like so outdated. It doesn't run anymore or whatever. And I go get a new phone and man, when I get that box and take off the plastic and open it up, like there is that dopamine hit. So you know, even as one of the minimalists, it's something I personally still struggle with and identify with. But I also know that if I chase that particular type of, of dopamine hit, it's, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to lead me. Well, you know, when you go with the flow, you end up going, you end up getting to the fall. Yeah. And, uh, I certainly don't want to end up there. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. I was going to ask, has it, had it been challenging to stay with this lifestyle? for such a long, you know, that's a, it's a commitment, isn't it? Like it's a, yeah, it's a big commitment. Well, you know, when you, when someone hears simple, they think easy <laughs> and simple and easy are not necessarily synonymous. No. So yeah, I, I would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you decide to live a deliberate life, a more intentional life, when you decide to live a simple life, it's really difficult. And it's, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of things you have to combat, whether it's your impulses, whether it's society, whether it's your friends and family who are now judging you for living a simple life. I mean, there's a lot that goes along with it. Uh, the one thing I will say though, is, you know, just like with any other healthy habits we bring into our lives, once you get consistent with it, it starts to show, you start to feel it and it starts to get a little easier, but certainly there will always be those challenges. Yeah. I was the only two things that I have that are similar, I guess, in my own life. Uh, one time was when I became vegan, and I'm not vegan anymore; still vegetarian. But I turned to veganism long before there were aisles full of vegan products in supermarkets uh, over ten years ago. And the other was I gave up drinking uh, almost a year ago. And in both cases, they what it 
took, what I've realized is that what it takes is a shift from kind of information. We all know we should drink less, for example, or we all can know the damage of, you know, animal uh, agriculture. But it's when that information turns into insight or sort of knowledge becomes knowing. You know, when you have a fundamental shift on the inside and you see things in a different way and once you do, you kind of can't unsee it. Mm. And then what I found is that the that desire for those things just is really not there anymore because you see it in a completely different way. Mm. And I feel like that's what you guys have are doing such a good job of is helping us to see living with less in a different way so that mm. more people can experience that same insight. Yeah. That's a great point. It makes me think about is like we just moved to Los Angeles a little under four years ago. And as soon as I got here, I realized like, oh, wow, this minimalism thing I've been doing for the past several, several years has been preparing me to live in LA because around every single corner is some name brand, you know, clothing or, or, or suitcase or, you know, whatever there's, there are, uh, sports cars and Tesla's and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and all these crazy. I mean, there's a lot of opulence here, right? It's Los Angeles. And I do look at that stuff and I can even admire the beauty of some of these things But like you said, like once I kind of saw it for what it is, like now when I see it, I can admire it, but I can quickly, or I should say more quickly, dismiss those impulses to chase after those things because I know where it leads. Yeah, I think that the thing to point out there with the changes that you make is that they weren't really habit changes. I think habit changes won't change your habits. Human beings are infatuated with habit change. I think the internet has really amplified that, right? Uh, But lasting change doesn't really work like that. I'll state it more plainly here. Changing your life won't change your life, but understanding will. The moment you recognize the source of your troubles, there's an awareness that flows through every fiber of your being and your habits will change without volition. Yeah, because if you try to change your habit, I mean, every time we've all tried this, right? Oh, I'm going to get up exactly. and go to the gym at 6 a.m. I'm going to drink uh, 64 ounces of water a day, all these things. And yeah, it lasts for a day or a week or maybe a month, right? But then, of course, we don't have that deep understanding. But once we see the problem in its entirety, not the solutions, not the symptoms, but the actual problem, we have no choice but to change. Yeah, exactly. I also teach mindfulness meditation and, um, you know, so I know firsthand the challenge that people have with just sitting quietly with no distraction, no phone, nothing but their own thoughts. And it feels like the minimum, like get, getting rid of your stuff is almost this, the same thing on a physical level, as you said. Would you, would you agree that when you remove all of the stuff, you remove all of the, the distraction and people are forced to sit with themselves? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's funny. It's, this is absurd. We have to teach mindfulness and we have to yeah. teach people to, <laughs> to let go of, their, of, of attachment, right? That's not our default state. If you look at pre-civilized people like the Hadza, for example, over in Tanzania, they're not attached to stuff. You don't need to teach them to be mindful. My daughter, who's eight years old, they have mind, 15 minutes of mindfulness in her school every day. And at first I'm like, wow, that's wonderful. But that's absurd. You know what that really tells me? You're spending seven hours taking her out of that state. 
And then you're teaching her how to, she knows how to be mindful. It's us parents who sort of you know, beat the mindfulness out of their, uh, not literally, obviously, but, but we, 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 uh, parenting is detrimental to children. I think we adults have more knowledge, but our children are far wiser than their conditioned parents. Not like an experience wisdom, but like a, a human being wisdom. A, a, there, there's an inherent mindfulness there, right? You, you see this in children. Consequently, we are, I think we're better served by learning from our kids than we are from parenting them. One of the most influential people in my life is a guy named Kapil Gupta, who is a philosopher. And, and he said, um, adults are fools, children are wise, um, children see every, for, for children, everything is new. Adults haven't seen a new thing in years. Yeah. How fascinating is that? We, we have to teach ourselves to be mindful. I saw on the calendar this week, Ryan has a breathing exercise on the calendar on Friday. I have a breathing app on my phone. How absurd is it that I have to have an app that tells me to breathe? This this is the world. This is the world that we live in. Yeah, I've is. just been reading another really great book about breathing. On that, I think that's fascinating. That none of us are actually breathing how we're supposed to breathe. But that's a whole separate podcast conversation. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. You guys, um, I'm conscious of your time. I really appreciate you being here. Um, like I said, I think that you, the work that you're doing, I really appreciate because it is helping. Certainly has mm. helped me, and I know it will help listeners to make that internal shift. Um, from, you know, just having this intellectual understanding that, yeah, we should buy less stuff because it's bad for the environment to actually we should be re-examining how we live our lives and, uh, and you know, reappraising our relationships with, with lots of things, as you have uh, outlined in the book, to help us to live a more meaningful life, which is what we are all after. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Like I said earlier, I truly believe that for any lifestyle change to be sustainable, we really need to look at things in a whole different way. And Josh and Ryan's latest book, Love People Use Things, certainly has helped me to view this whole minimalism idea from a different perspective. And if that interests you, you can grab it in all good bookstores now. And if you're keen to learn more about minimalism, there are loads of resources on their website, theminimalists.com, or definitely check out their podcast or their films on Netflix or any of their other books. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be notified of when I release new episodes. Leave me a rating or review as it really does help the show to be seen and heard by more listeners. And of course, tell your friends. Come and hang out with me on Instagram. I'm at castdun underscore XO or on Facebook, castdun.xo. My website is castdun.com and you can get on my mailing list there. I look forward to catching you on the next episode of Crappy to Happy. Listener.